you know, in a career like acting where so many things have already been accomplished by other actors, you don't necessarily set out to be the first of something. What is the first? So the people know. So the first first that I got was to be able to play Misty Knight, who was the first Black female superhero ever drawn. So that was, you know, the first first. And now to be the first Black woman to lead a show on CBS, which I didn't realize I was the first. Thank you very much. Um, I didn't realize that I was technically the first until maybe six months ago. So I had already booked the job, been filming, been working, and somebody does an interview and they're like, you know, as the first, I said, really? And I'm like Googling, like certainly this couldn't be, you know? And so having those as first that I think my children's children will also be able to look to and be inspired by. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? I am here to welcome you to episode four of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Obviously, that's who I am. And uh, I'm keeping it in the family in this uh, follow-up to our interview with Dorian Missick. Um, I am proud and honored to introduce y'all who don't know her already in this kind of conversation to Simone Missick. Um, Simone is super talented. I had the pleasure um, of working with her on my short film, Black Card, back in 2014, um, which was the thing that kind of got me going in the industry, uh, as far as at least uh, on the radar of television uh, diversity programs. And uh, she's just a super talented uh, actor who it's been a pleasure to watch grow um, and settle firmly into the number one on the call sheet seat of All Rise on CBS. So um, it's another kind of fly on the wall conversation. That's what I'm trying to do with each of these um, interviews that we do. And I hope you enjoy. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Simone, thanks for joining the podcast. We appreciate you being here. It, are we calling it a chat with Chapman? I feel like that should that should be like, hey, on a T-shirt. I'm like I'm I'm th- I'm four episodes or three episodes too late. I should have come to you earlier to get that <laughs> marketing. That's like my second. Boom! It's there. It's there. I want to. Um, so I mean, you know, first, you know, obviously, like thanks. You know, um, I, I feel like it's. We're going to hop around the journey. I think it's interesting to share with folks how, um, you know, we were almost about to do some work together on the season finale of All Rise. And then 
uh, COVID-19, which was supposed to be gone in 15 days. It was just going to go right away. that hasn't happened and we got shut down. That was the job I was working. Um, but I don't know if you read that script, um, but it was dope. And I was excited and amped to direct you on that. And they were like, yo, spend the money. Like, I know. That was the thing that I was most heartbroken about. I was like, they were going to give him the money. Like that's every <laughs> director's dream. And they're just like, just yeah. fuck it up. And so, yeah, yeah, that was that was quite heartbreaking um, on many levels. And it is still jarring with the current state that we're living in. But, you know, I have full confidence that season two is coming up. Uh, yeah. And, you know, as, as much as I kept, you know, pumping your name, I don't think that after, you know, you already got hired that we won't have you back. So <laughs> there's a reason for everything. Wow. I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, before we dive into it, like, like, how are you? Because the world is is shifting. Um, there's some positive things happening. There's a lens on the, the 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 fucked up shit and the negativity that a lot of people have lived with forever. Um, it's mm-hmm. kind of I don't want to say I'll say recognize. It's so di- words are so important now because it's there. There's the semantics of things have have been the issue for so long. But let's just say there's more recognition uh, and allyship around a lot of what's going on. But it's also tethered to horrible events that have been just you know on on rinse and repeat. Um, how are you feeling? How are you kind of navigating this time? Uh, To be quite honest, I have been doing a lot to just, as as much as I can, um, shield myself from it. And I think, you know, because it is on rinse and repeat, because it is, to me, a generational trauma that we have been living over and over and over again, that I have seen from the time I was a child, to the time I remember the Rodney King beatings, growing up in a city like Detroit, knowing that it had the riots, knowing that my dad, you know, marched on Washington, knowing what my grandparents had to deal with, all of the people who had to escape in my family from various, you know, situations involving the white people getting, you know, upset at whatever way that they chose to, straighten their backs. Uh, You know, all of that just lives so close to the edge in me. And it is, it gets examined in work that I do often. You know, I I did a play a couple years ago and they wanted to do a reading of it again. Uh, And they ended up doing- Was this a play I saw you in um, at the- Citizen at the, yeah. Yeah. So they did a reading for it, thank you. They did a reading for it, a Citizen and American Lyric, and it was based off of a book of poetry. And that was uh, that was such a traumatic theater experience. Like, you know, you, you normally look for theater to be uh, cathartic as an artist or to, to bring you to a different place. And I just always found myself angrier and angrier and angrier every time I did the play, because I'd done it three different times at three different places with three different um, audiences, but we know that white American theater is, it tends to be middle-aged, white, you know, you might con- consider yourself liberal, but you're probably conservative. 
Um, and so having to have these conversations, you know, uh, with different faces, but it's the same, I didn't know, and how are you feeling? And, you know, very well-meaning. Uh, I, I just, I have to protect myself from that. Um, and at the same time, try to find inspiration from the small changes, which are major, the advances that we're making, the fact that Brianna's law got passed yesterday, the fact that there is, you know, the, the mayor of LA has committed to slashing the budget for the police, the fact that in Minneapolis, they're talking about defunding the police and taking steps towards that, the things that are happening in Seattle and all of these small changes that are happening incrementally globally that give right. me hope, but it's all the other stuff like every time I, I turn on the computer, there is another video of someone who got murdered that that got swept under the rug. Nobody talked about it. That didn't make the news cycle. And so it's, uh, that's how I am best managing it right now. Two weeks ago, it was different. Two weeks from now, it will be different. You know, you can't just close the world off and, you know, say, but I think for mental health, which so many Black people don't necessarily get the opportunity to acknowledge. Um, I was listening to the town hall with Oprah and a doctor on there said that Black people who experience or witness the killing of Black people by police uh, suffer from that PTSD for at least three months. Mm. How often are we constantly then resetting the three-month cycle from that? So... Well you you hit on a good you hit on an interesting point because like i'm constantly i'm i as a writer and a director there's like you move through life and like you do things and then you kind of hop up to 10,000 feet and recognize mm -hmm. it so like I'll, I'll give you like two examples i remember when i was living in newark new jersey on like like a hood block right and when i moved to jersey city the mm -hmm. day that the lease was signed and I went back to Newark, I was mm -hmm. like, holy shit, I'm getting so tense. The closer mm -hmm. I get to home, because I have to be on high alert because I don't know what is going to pop off. And mm -hmm. I lived like that for eight yeah. years. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and it was just like, I mean, like I, I had, like, I never walked on the sidewalk. I walked in the middle of the street because I like, just for me, like if somebody, if I'm going to get into something, you ain't going to come out and surprise me. Yeah. You don't have to take like 10 steps, my man. And you know what I mean? Like, right. like little shit like yeah. that, you know? And, and even yesterday uh, we were walking the dog and like you have your mask and then the same kind of anxiety you get when you see the cops in the rearview mirror you know, we're going through fits and starts of, you know, taking the mask on and off. And then like, you see the cops and you're like, fuck, should I put my mask on? Are they going to fuck with me? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and people don't even move through the world like that. So no. <laughs> all of that to, to, to get to a question, um, what responsibility do you think storytelling has in, in shaping the society that we've lived in? Oh, uh, I don't know if I can break it down to a percentage, but a huge yeah. responsibility. We are often the images that we see, the 
stories that we've heard. That's what shapes culture, uh, understanding, bias, different, you know, the way that we subjugate people, all of that is based on the media, television, the movies we see, right? Um, and and I believe that, you know, I, I, there's always been that debate amongst Black creatives. It's like, I just want to be a storyteller. I just want to be an actor. I just want to be a writer. I just want to be a director. I don't want to be a Black writer, a Black director, a Black artist. And I completely understand where that comes from because it's the desire to be free. But it's also the idea that if one person isn't free, none of us are free, right? And so, yeah, you as the individual can make the decision, like, don't call me a Black actor. Just call me an actor. But the fact is, there are a lot of people out there who are being influenced by the images that you put on screen that then make them decide who a whole culture of people are. And although it's unfair, there is nothing about life that is fair. And that is black, white, brown, yellow, male, female, trans, gay, straight, Muslim, Hebrew, Jew, Gentile, like it doesn't matter. Life isn't fair. And so as heavy as it is, we can't as a collective ignore the fact that what is seen on screen is the decision that most people end at with who uh, an entire culture of people are. And, right. you know, I was just reading an article about Dick Wolf mm-hmm. and the way that his programming for the past 20 years has shaped our society. And the, the article was in the LA Times and it, you know, it started from the perspective of, when you looked at TV before Dick Wolf, you had like Dragnet and Columbo or Matlock, and it was all about the defense lawyer pr- protecting the innocent, the wrongly accused, the little guy. And then when Dick Wolf came came along, you know, you know the intro, the the D- assistant DAs or the DAs and the cops. These are their these are their stories, right? And so the perspective became on the cop, the good cop, the district attorney, the person that is, you know prosecuting the criminals, which are often black and brown or, you know, a certain socioeconomic strata or, and, and yes, the different shows vary on that. But if you look at the diversity or lack thereof in those rooms that right. he runs for 20 years, how can it be in a city like New York? How can those stories be really diverse? Right. If you've got a middle-aged white guy telling you what's going down in Brooklyn, what's happening in Harlem. And so, that's what we watch on repeat all day long and, and the shows and, that have been and just to speak to your craft and, and tell me if i'm wrong but th- that if you were a new york actor that was your like tr- training ground and like uh like uh, uh what the, there's a word i can't think of but it was like a necessary like thing that you did that's the, that's the that- feather in your cap almost that you had to get in order right. to say, well, I'm an actor, you know, you right. couldn't come from, from New York. I remember Dorian, uh, my husband, Dorian, who's also an actor, if you don't know, he was saying that he went to LA and took a meeting and they were like, well, we don't, we don't see any, uh, any law and order on your resume. Like, how are you a New York actor and you don't have any law and order on your resume? He's like, right. Shit, I gotta go back and book some law and order. He's like, I've been doing theater. I've been doing this and that. And so, yeah, it was like, a necessity 
as a New York actor, but then when you look at what some of these stories are and how mm -hmm. that then bled into the other programs, the other cop shows, the other lawyer shows where it's all about prosecuting the bad people, which are usually gonna be black or brown and poor or, and, and they're perpetuated as just straight evil. You know what I mean? And so that, and if you're looking at somebody who lives in a town where there are no people outside of their particular demographic, that's the only impression that they have. So a, it I becomes mean, a diet, right? Yeah. It becomes a diet. Yeah. And as with any diet, you eat nothing but McDonald's, you know, you're going to have some hypertension. You get nothing but mm -hmm. negative, threatening imagery of people. It creates a different kind of hypertension. Yeah. I just came up with that on the spot. I, I like that. Cool. that needs to um, be <laughs> we need to lower the blood pressure of people all across exactly. the world. Well, let, let's rewind back to the first moment that you um, like saw a story and it had a significant impact on you mm. or, or heard a story. It might have been at the, at the table. It might have been about a great uncle or something, but like where you kind of felt the impact of how what people do and then how it's recounted to someone or a group of people can be powerful. I think that. For me, it was probably the story about my, <clears throat> my great-grandfather who passed away when I was about nine, uh, but he was my dad's best friend. Um, that was his granddad. They had a very close relationship. Uh, his name was Maceo Albany, but we called him Buddy. And the thing that I always remember my dad telling me about Buddy when I was growing up, because he lived in DC and we lived in Detroit, so I would only see him like twice a year. Uh, was that Buddy was the first Black man to carry mail by train in the United States. And that he was featured in the Smithsonian Museum, but didn't tell anybody in the family. Uh, and so it wasn't until after the exhibit was over, they were like, wait, what? What do you, what do you mean you were in the Smithsonian? But, which was right up the street from them. Um, right. But that Buddy carried a pistol and that was empowering for a black man at that time. And that he had had, you know, run-ins trying to do his job with various white people who did not like the idea of a black man standing up with his back straight. Um, and, and I just remember this immense sense of pride, like, oh, I've got somebody in my family who actually did something. I've got somebody in my family who uh, accomplished something that other people thought was great. And, you know, I, I remember that being at a very young age, the idea of how important that was to have someone that I could look at in my family that was considered great on some level, you know, the first of something. Um, and, I, you know, I, I just remember how important that is, how that important that was, how influential it was, how much pride I had behind it. Um, and it's funny, I've gotten, <laughs> now that I think about it, I've gotten the blessing of having so many firsts in my career, you know, and, and never really looked at, I mean, you don't set out, some people do, but, you know, in a career like acting where so many things have already been accomplished by other actors, you don't necessarily set out to be the first of something, you know, and yet these and what, first. What, 
what is the first so the people so, know? So uh, the first first that I got was to be able to play Misty Knight, who was the first Black female superhero ever drawn. So that was, a, you know, a first, that I was the first person to be able to inhabit that character who was also a first, right? Right, um, right. And she was animated by a Black, two uh, animators, but one of whom was a Black guy from Detroit, my hometown. Um, and she was written to be from Detroit originally and moved to Harlem, which I thought was so interesting because, you know, economy... I want to I want to change the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was, you know, the first first. And now to be the first Black woman to lead a show on CBS, which I didn't realize I was the first. Thank you very much. Um, I didn't realize that I was technically the first until maybe six months ago. So I had already booked the job, been filming, been working. And somebody does an interview and they're like, you know, as the first, I said, really? And I'm like Googling, like certainly this couldn't be, you know? And so having those as first that I think my children's children will also be able to look to and be inspired by and, you know, hopefully take that up and and run with it to, to have a sense of pride in something that they they have no control over, they didn't make happen. But I mean, think about you know the number of people who are set off on a, a course in life about stuff that they didn't have any hand in doing. And so hopefully right. this, you know, is not only inspirational to my family but to other Black and Brown kids. Just a quick question: Was the Lola Carmichael character always written to be Black? No. Okay. No. No. Not as I understand it. No, and okay. I mean, not as I've ever heard it, no. Um, and I was actually the last piece of the puzzle. I was the last person to get cast. Uh, and if they did not find me, I'm not sure if the show would have made it to the air. Um, and so that, you know, that's, hmm. right. That's <laughs> yeah. I, I um, think, but I, I think that it's, I think that it's, a, it's a, everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. I think it's a, a good, you know, reason, um, a good, right. it was good for me, but yeah, no. Well, that, no, that's, that's dope. I, I, I knew those first, but I just, I just recognized, like, I wonder if, I just thought about that. Like, I wonder if that was the way the character had always been written. Um, yeah. So for you, I'm curious, for you, I'm curious, what was your first image that you then yeah. thought, ah, this is. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I, I, I say it all the time. Um, it is the smallest of moments. Before I cleaned up the, the back of this office, um, I had a bunch of Air Jordans over there because uh, I'm stereotypical okay. and I, I'm doing my part. <laughs> and so, and so um, in Do the Right Thing, when Buggin' Out got his Jordan scuffed, um, and, uh, was like, like that was the first moment that was 1989. So I'm 12 years old. I haven't yeah. seen many movies, right? Like if I were to go through the Rolodex of movies in my life, by that time, I've probably seen, I, I'm making this up maybe 15, like, like really, how many did you see? You saw yeah. ET, you saw, you know? Um, and so I remember looking at that and I was like, yo, that happens to me. 
Yeah. That's how I feel about that. Because I had finally, yeah. it, it took years of begging and I was finally just made to shut up by some Jordans that probably, <laughs> you know, made us not eat uh, the way we would uh, for like a week or two. You know what I mean? Right. And right. Um, I was just like, man, like the, the moment of seeing myself on screen and being able to say, wow, I'm reflected. There's a mirror. And also... Like I was always a bit of a storyteller. Like I used to like creative writing and then I was, I was rapping, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it was just kind of like, this is an opportunity to, um, this was an, a moment that propelled me forward in finding value in the things that I thought about. So, wow. you know, um, and you need that. That's why it's, it's super important that people see a character like Lola as a judge or, you know, my wife, Kelly, she gets, I mean, girls dress up, little girls dress up as Maggie Pierce for Halloween. Which is so dope. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, so yeah. You, you can't, like, this idea that representation uh, doesn't matter. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think people say it as an idea, but they, there's maybe not a cosign in the value of it. Uh, well, mm -hmm. they very, folks are very much aware of the value of representation. It's just who are they willing to pass it to? Um, yeah. How'd you get your start? How did I get my start? I mean, let's see. I uh, I minored in theater at Howard, which was a huge kind of a leap for me. I started out as an English major. Uh, always knew I wanted to be an actor. I was too scared to mm -hmm. um, go after it to go full throttle um, going into college because I knew that it was the one thing that I really wanted to do and yet had no pathway for it. Hadn't done it in high school. You know, you always have those kids who are like, well, I'm in drama. And I was like, they're lames. So I, I just played sports and played music. I was a violinist and I played basketball, ran track and didn't tell anybody in my super supportive ass family that I wanted to be an actor. I was just like, ah, eh, eh, eh. Uh, but you want to talk about always. Think about not having multiple representative mm -hmm. images mm -hmm. created the potential for someone of your talent and someone out there right now won't make that pivot that yeah. you made. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so like, anyhow, I'm just. No, I mean, I, I think that that's a huge part of it. I knew, I, I knew how to become a professional athlete if that's what I wanted. I knew mm -hmm. how to become a, a, you know, professional violinist if that's what I wanted. Um, but I didn't know anyone who was an actor. And even though by that time, I mean, we're talking about 1999, 2000, when I went to college, You've got plenty of TV shows. You've got plenty of new movies. You know, this is during the what I call the Black Renaissance, where you had the best man, the wood, the, you know, you had all the TV shows. This was post a different world in the Cosby show. And now you're in the, you know, black sitcom and even some black dramas. It was still like that's so far away. Um, so I ended up taking an actor for non an acting for non-majors class. My teacher was super supportive. Um, she still is. She still sends me students for me to mentor, um, which is amazing that she even, you know, thinks about me in that way. And 
I say that I have a, a, someone that I've mentored, but she was already at Yale, but she was, she had graduated from Howard uh, and she was getting ready to graduate from Yale. And now she's on a show on Showtime, City on a Hill. Her name is Lauren Banks. But, you know, that's just like who this, this professor was, who ended up becoming the department head at Howard. But um, I took her class and she was, I said, should I change my major? And she's like, no, just take as many classes as you want. And so I graduated with almost a double major, but basically a minor in theater. Um, right. went, to, went to BADA, the British American Drama Academy, post-graduation in Oxford. It's a program that, you know, they do over in Oxford, England every summer. Uh, I have tons of people who reach out to me about that. Like, should I do it? Did you have a good experience? You know, uh, which I did. And I met some great artists. Uh, three of whom went on to do and are still doing great things. One of whom, Nelson Ellis, who played Lafayette on yeah, True Blood yeah. and, you know, was a phenomenal artist who's no longer with us. And I have another yeah. friend named Ngozi, who's a phenomenal playwright and actor. She's had her work produced all over the country. Um, and then another friend named Ryder Doyle, who is a writer on a show that he created on Netflix and produced called Bonded um about this guy who's like the roommate to a bdsm uh dominatrix and it's like a comedy and mm -hmm. it's so fitting for him to have written this but he's also on this show called barry but you know those are the three people that i was like the the coolest with the tightest with and they have gone on went on to do great things and so post bada moved back home saved money uh moved to la and for 10 years, did everything from waiting tables and cocktail waitressing, delivering laundry, uh, auditioning, 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 auditioning. Um, and then, you know, stuff started to happen. Let me ask you, what skills did you learn from those side jobs? Because I, oh, often, I often say, like, one of my favorite, I pumped gas for two years. Oh, yeah. New Jersey. In Jersey, you can't pump your own yeah. gas. You can't pump your own gas in New Jersey. And so I, my ex-girlfriend, the girlfriend at the time, her father owned a gas station. And so I would come home from NYU every weekend and pump gas. And it was mostly to get some pocket change. And I, I have many worldly possessions um, and, to, <laughs> and, and to kick it with her. Except for your Jordans. Except for my Jordans, you know. And so, uh, I learned a lot about, I learned things there that I think make me a, a, a better director. I learned how people view different people based off of where they assume they fit into the hierarchy of life. Yeah. I, I didn't love that job, but now when I go somewhere, man, I, I'm like, hey, what's up, Mr. Janitor? You know what I mean? Yo, thank you. You know, like, what kind of things did you learn as you journeyed through what you got to do to stay afloat in pursuit of the dream. God, uh, so many intangibles, uh, honestly. Um, it wasn't that, you know, I learned anything new in terms of the way that people are or human behavior is, or, you know, these are all things that I just observed and witnessed that, that kind of live in, in me as an artist that I can then say, oh, oh I know who this, character is or I know people like this kind of person 
Um, but I waited tables at the, everywhere from the Cheesecake Factory to Katana to Katsuya to the Montage. That was my last table waiting job in LA. Um, the Montage. The the montage Beverly Hills. And that was full, oh. of, full oh. of some crazy. You got full you, of you, some built, crazy. you built some character up in that one. Oh my goodness. But you know, I will I will say I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna come back to this story about Will Smith. I'll come back to that. Um, but I will say waiting tables and doing commercials has made me the person that I am in terms of my ability. One to it's <laughs> Dorian and I, we laugh about it. We say it's like my special skill. Like I know how to get in, have a conversation with the person and get the fuck out of it. Like I, because when you're waiting tables, you've got 30 seconds to endear someone to you, to make them feel comfortable, to let them know that you're going to take care of them. And then you got five other tables to take care of. You want to get that tip. You want to make sure that they feel special and not only make sure they feel special, but actually have a connection with them. Like, what are you doing here? Is it your, what are you celebrating? What brings you out tonight? Oh, where are you guys from? The, these things are, are real things that I find myself employing every day on set. And so when I go on set, I remember on my first big job, which was Luke Cage, Mike Coulter used to call me Huggy Bear. He was like, oh, here we go with Huggy Bear. She got to hug everybody before she gets to set. But that was how I felt. It was like there was no person that was unimportant. There was no department that I wanted to ignore. I'm asking you what you did for the weekend. How did your kid's soccer game go? And I mean it. But it came from not only the customers that you dealt with, but your fellow employees that you worked with, where you created, you know, a family. Um, and so that and commercials, like when you book a commercial, you have to go in and essentially sell yourself for three minutes and let right. them know you're not crazy. You're not a diva. You're not going to act a fool on set. You know how to sell a product. And <laughs> if right. there is anything that is network television, it's selling products. Like would they say that TV shows are created to sell time? You know what I mean? And so the ability to make a mass amount of people across the country that is so varied identify with you as an individual, I think is, is in a way marketing. Um, right, and right. obviously, I'm not approaching the work thinking, how do I, how do I sell this tide? Or how do I, you know, well, let this person feel good about me? That's not how it is. But I think that it is something that has filtered its way into something in some, you know, in some way. Well, I asked, I wanted to know, because I feel like there is a responsibility in being number one on a call sheet that is best realized by someone who understands how to work a room. And I, and I think that I feel like there are these things that kind of get negative connotations. So like I often talk to people and I'm like, it's not networking, it's nurturing, right? Like yeah. find a real connection to, the, to this person, yeah. have a genuine interest in their success and uh, be leave a wake of, of just good vibes behind you. Um, I had, I was talking to Kelly again last night and I was like, you know, I was talking to some other directors and I was like, they're like, oh, well, how do you, I'm like, I'm going through all these meetings and nothing's happening. I'm like, yo, like I used to be you 
I'm going to tell you something mm-hmm. and you're going and you're not going to feel like it's an answer. But I feel like your 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 expectation is fucking you up because you just have to be a boat moving through this industry. People have to know where you want to dock it. So for me, it was like, know that I want to do half hour single camera comedies because that was my first target. So I could do that and then transition to a show like yours. Right. But like just leave awake as your boat is just out there looking for a a dock of like, yo, that boat's nice. That boat runs well. Yo, I I got on the boat for 10 minutes. Yo, they had like cool food and shit. Like it was good vibes. (laughs) And and they're there when a spot opens up at the dock. Like, I think we should put uh, that boat here. And you get Absolutely. you get 300 people, 10, 20, you know, whatever amount of people to feel that way about your boat, you will dock that boat. That, Absolutely. That's just how it is. And and I think that's a, a good, it, it, it's, uh, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to directing the show because I, so I can see the number one in action. Um, you had a Will Smith story though. Yes. And I think it filters into the way that I look at number ones. Um, and and being in that position. So it was early morning, super early morning, uh, like 9 a.m., no one's really in this area, which we called the lobby lounge at the time. And so it was like a place where you could go in, do your coffee. It, it was open all day, cocktails at night, you know, breakfast and coffee and stuff during the day, afternoon tea. But it was a place that like people would take meetings. Um, there was a writer, uh, God, what was his last name? Bats. He wrote like a ton of stuff, uh, but I forget it. I forget his first name now. But anyway, he he made that his writer's room. So he and his assistant right. would come in and just prop up all day and just drink coffees and cappuccinos and be in there. And so uh, one day, in walks Will Smith and Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, small time peanuts actors, right? And they're taking. Oh, wait, I imagine. I imagine you did like a, a quintuple take. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is happening? Because it was also early, right? And I knew that there was a private meeting in the back room. Uh, but, you know, they, I didn't know who it was. And so they walk in and I watch Will Smith from what is like the back corner of the room, the back east corner of the room, walk all the way to the southwest corner of the room. And every person that was in there. Hey, how you doing, Will? Nice to meet you. Hey, how you doing, Will? Nice to meet you. And Tom was like, oh, oh shit, we're doing this. Hey, Tom. Hey, I'm Tom. And he was like, what the fuck? I didn't know we were shaking hands, Will. But how many times do you meet people who are not named famous? And you go, hey, Pete Chapman, nice to meet you. Hey, nice to meet you, Pete. And you're like, what the fuck is your name? Like, are you not going to introduce yourself? You just assume that I know right. who you are. And right. the fact that this man was who and is still who he is at this, right. you know, extremely high level of fame, popularity, notoriety, recognition, and still thought it important to go and say hello to every single person in the room. Right. That was for me such a wonderful visual, you know, because so often, like I said, I come across people who are just like, they think their shit don't stink. And you're like, yeah, but it do, you know what I mean? And not in like a, 
you're nothing, but in a way that we are all human beings. And so that's the way that I try to operate on set. It's like, we are all here to do a job. My background actors to me are just as important as my cast members. I don't want anybody being treated wrong, disrespected, treated as a human prop. Um, and, you know, thankfully we have a set that operates with so much kindness that you never hear anybody yelling. And I remember our executive producer, Michael Robin, he was like, that's just not something that I allow on my show. There's, there's no reason why you should be yelling at your grip department or your light, lighting department or your background actors for that matter. And so when we hear people curse, even though I curse like a sailor, but even when you hear people curse, you're like, uh-oh, who, 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 let, who let the gate in? Like who opened the gate? Who let these people in? Because it's such a set of like respect and kindness and love. And, and I think that, you know, if I came in there, oh, I've only had six hours of sleep. I had a 4 a.m. start. I'm tired. I'm annoyed. One, I'm getting paid to do what I love. And there are plenty of people who would want to be here. So that concept of like, you know, feel bad for me. It's like, do you know how many people are not getting paid anything close to what you're getting paid to do what they love or what they kind of like, what they have to do? And so I do not complain. I don't. I don't actually, I try not to encourage complaining. I don't want people to not feel heard and seen. Um, mm-hmm. But when it, I, what I won't allow is like a spirit of uh, ungratefulness because I remember waiting tables. And this is like, <laughs> this is such a quick thing, but waiting tables at the Cheesecake Factory. When I came in, that was the job. When I moved to LA, I was like, I gotta get this job. The Cheesecake Factory. Right. I have to work at the Cheesecake Factory at the Grove, right? And so I get the job when they were like, we're not hiring any waiters. And I'm like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. You don't know who I pray to. And so I got in and they were like, "Uh, you're hired? And I was like, of course I am. You didn't know what I did. So I get in there and everybody there is like, just watch out. The tips are shitty. The customers are awful. We get all these tourists. Nobody tips 20%. It's going to be terrible. I was like, oh, you don't know the God I know. And every single table. I was getting 20% and it didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter the most stereotypical, these people don't tip people. Mm -hmm. They were giving me 20%. And I was like, I'm really sorry that you guys, you know, are having such a tough time, but I'm not. And somewhere in there, all of that negativity, all of that, I hate this job. These people are awful. It started to filter in. It started to trickle into me. One table, give me a bad tip. And I'm like, "Mm." another table, and then it became three tables, then it became seven, then it became everybody to where I hated my job. I was like, these people are awful. I am not getting what I deserve. They are shitty tippers. And I realized it was because I allowed all that negativity to color what I knew was a blessing from the moment I got there. And so I said, I will never, ever, ever let that happen on a job when it comes to acting. And so that's how I, you know, work from here on out. Much like I'm sure you work as a director the way that you did when you were pumping gas. Like, I'm gonna get to know people. I'm gonna make sure that people, and every time you go and get your gas pumped or you're going and and dealing with people on a, you know, service level. Yeah, I think 
this is a, a really good conversation and, and I, I would I would say to listeners who think perhaps we're off topic, we're actually sharing the the nucleus of success in this industry. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like it's not going to be about solely how well you act or how well you direct. And in many regards, you won't even get to the point of displaying your skill if you're not able to navigate uh, and present positivity to the people that you must uh, maneuver through, you know? Yeah. Yo, this is Dorian Missy, a.k.a. DJ Tailwind Turner from the ABC show For Life. And you're listening to Let's Shoot with my man Pete Chapman. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. So I I, I want to, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll hop to 20, gosh, what is that, 2014? Uh, yeah. 15? Um, maybe, okay. We make Black Card. Um, 2014. 2014. Yeah, it, I think it was, we shot it at the end of 14. Um, and November. so, November. It was cold. It was, cold. Um, it, was, it was great. I was, I had most of the cast, um, but I don't, you know, I, I hadn't really gotten to meet you like thoroughly, thoroughly. And I remember when y'all got married, like I, I had no money to go to Bahamas, you know what I'm saying? So I was like, you know, I, I love them photos, you know, I saw y'all yeah. jump in the room. Um, but I was looking for someone to play that character. And Dorian was like, uh, yo, Simone. Um, oh. And I was like, uh, I was like, you sure, man? Like, I don't mean to ask it like that, but like. <laughs> no, I remember yeah. being so nervous. And Dorian was like, don't worry. Like, Simone, you're, you're good. Like, Pete just, you know, he wants to know. And I was, I felt like this was the most important audition to not fuck up. You know what I mean? I was like, if I just stink up the place, then he's going to think, one, I got an obligation to my friend to be like, sorry, man, your girl is terrible. We, I feel like we just had a conversation, though. We like, did, I but I felt ready. like there was, I, that was an audition. Like a meeting is an audition. audition. Right. That, you know what I mean? And I feel yeah. like I had to, I had to send over some stuff. I feel like there was like, I had to send over. There was a you're short not just film called yeah. Voiceover, if I'm not mistaken, that voicemail, I voicemail, voicemail. Okay, and I was like, okay, like I'm looking, I'm looking for the nuance. Um, I'm looking for like a sensibility. Um, and then 
this is great for directors too. Like a lot of times you're going to do, you're going to cast people, particularly when I did my feature, when nobody fucking auditioning for me, I I was the person with the least experience. So I basically, (laughs) I either had to outright offer the job or for people who weren't like Hill Harper and Zoe Saldana or Frankie, like I might get a coffee. And in that coffee, I'm actually auditioning mostly for like, do you get what's happening on the page? And are you connected to the themes of the material? But also like, are you going to try and play me like on set? Like, do are you going to treat me like shit? Like there's one person and maybe one day I'll give her name, but she's a a Broadway actress, black female, Mm -hmm. um, kind of legendary. And and I was like, wow, this like, this how you going to be like over tea? Like, like th- this is you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And and I was like, cool, that's great. Cause now I know. And as, and as much as exposure as maybe she could have brought to the role, it would have fucking been horrible. You know what I'm saying? And, and that is an audition as well. Um, I'm but, curious, but, how do you as a director feel about offer only? I, Cause I know how I as an actor feel about it. And it's probably not the way 90% of actors feel about it, but how do you feel about it? I, I can, I feel that I can look at enough of your work because that's my job and, and get a sense of like how you manipulate. And I don't mean that negatively, how you manipulate moments. Right. So like, do you, like some actors you can, you can look at and be like, Oh, you have a set of tools that you just go to that are like mm-hmm. fucking knee jerk and you think that means listening when you make that face. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. and, and, and then there's the, folks- The jaw like, clinch. Yeah, the jaw, the yeah. Fist, the lip quiver. Yeah. The, yeah, there are all kinds of tricks. Yeah. We all have our, we all have tells. I mean, those, that's just human behavior. It's human behavior. Right. But I know but, what you mean. But, but you can look and you'd be like, okay, you just going back to the bag. Um, and yeah. then there's folks where you're like, okay, I see what you're doing here. And if you look at enough, if you, God, I, it starts sounding pompous, but fuck it. If you, if you understand what can happen with a moment, how it's really about little decisions that mean everything, then I think you get to a point where you can watch enough of someone's work and get a sense of what they are doing. I think if you only see it in one or two things, like you might, you might have, you might have fallen into a harder to read scenario because maybe they just had some super dope direction and didn't agree with what they did, but it just happened twice, right? But I think yes. you're kind of like looking for that, and then um, so I, I get the offer only, but I feel like at a minimum, folks need to have a conversation to 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 connect and to and to talk thematically, particularly because a lot of the things that I want to try and do are like tonal tightropes, and it's like, can you right. can you find the joke in that moment, but not mm-hmm. play the joke, and can you mm-hmm. un- like you know what I mean? Like, do you understand the politics yeah. underneath that? And so for for our conversation on Black Card, it was aware, it was clear rather that that was beyond uh anchored in your wheelhouse it was something that you would excel at and and elevate um because there's so many things going on underneath for that character yeah i mean that was such a great experience it was so great uh just and and i think that what was funny was 
what Dorian and I worked on in our portion of it. And then when you saw how everything else came together and was layered with all the other characters, like, oh, the, the, the damn, what was the group? The, the commission. Like, the commission. Ah, God, the moment with Steven when he's like throwing the kale in the guy's <laughs> Like there was just so much in it that was so genius and and brilliant and just well done, man. It was just so well done that uh, that I just I was happy to be a part of you know that kind of storytelling that I just didn't see that often, you know, when it came to people that look like me, like that kind of you know dark comedy in a way political commentary, social commentary, what is blackness, like all of those things that I'm sure we've all had to either explain to somebody or experience or, you know, talk about in a, at a dinner party. Uh, all of those things, it was just, it was so well done. It was so smart. And it was a lot of, a lot of fun to be a part of. But I remember just being terrified. Like, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. <laughs> It's so funny, uh, man. It, it, it's it's just it's interesting hearing those things. You know what I mean? Um, I remember when I did my first short with Dorian. Now we're talking 1997, um, and a friend who was producing told me, I think, because he had yeah, because you know, you everything's by hook or crook. Ain't no money, and the call time was super early. So I think um, he had to crash at, at, at her place so we could coordinate all the morning, like hookup, uh, uh, pickups. And she said, yeah, he was practicing the lines in the shower. I could hear him running the lines. And I was like, yo, that's what's up. And literally like that, I was like, yo, somebody out here practicing my lines, you know? Like, and, and literally, man, I mean, we, we've done so many things to get, and going to continue. Um, yeah. So let, let's let's kind of fast forward to All Rise and, um, you know, you've had such an interesting journey um, from kind of pushing down this desire to be an actor to navigating theater and all of the politics there, I'm sure. Um, and then really kind of, uh, because well, let me ask you, was Blackheart like, and, and voicemail, were those like your first kind of filmed things? No. So I had, interestingly enough, as an undergrad at Howard, I did a grad student's thesis. He did a okay. full-length feature. Um, and that was my first movie experience. And, you know, it was kind of like, I'm in college. This is great. I get to be an actor. And I remember... Oh God, that, huh. it was billed as like the male sex in the city, which I think every black man was trying to make for like a right. decade. Because I remember when I met Dorian, he, yeah. was, uh, he was working on Lenox Avenue, which was billed as the male sex in the city. So I was like, y'all just been trying to do this shit for a long ass time. Um, but that was my first experience. And I remember feeling used mm. by that particular uh, project. Uh, the character was someone that one of the guys was dating or on a date with. And the joke of it was that he was drunk and my character wasn't. 
and he was poking my boob and and saying like Pisces and I'm like what the, what the fuck is this and and I remember just not feeling good about it like that that was the joke and not feeling good about the joke like it wasn't that, that wasn't written in the stage directions when I auditioned for it you know what I mean right. um and I I remember my grandparents came because you know I'm at Howard so I'm in DC and they came and I was like so embarrassed like my grandfather my granddad is watching somebody poke in my boob in a movie what the fuck is this but that was my first you know film experience um and then I ended up when I, I moved to LA I booked a film called The Road to Sundance and it was about a woman whose husband died unexpectedly they had been working on a movie indie film producers and so she wanted to carry on and complete the movie and she teams up with this diva you know white guy who's kind of well-known, but he's, you know, got his own bad reputation. And this is like supposed to be his way of like getting in the indie world and rebranding himself and, you know, the fish out of water, all of that. And I met a really good friend of mine who wrote and directed voicemail, Thomas Frazier. That was where he and I met. Um, but that was such an amazing learning experience for me because the film, low budget, feature film, the woman who wrote it, uh, this was a labor of love for her. And right. so we started out and she's got these huge ideas. So we're flying to Baltimore to shoot this film. I was like, this is, this is amazing. This is my first film in LA. I was maybe there for like three, five months. And now somebody's yeah. flying me to Baltimore to film. And, you know, there were all of these like grand ideas about it. And we flew to Baltimore. Um, we ended up shooting in her childhood home that had not been prepped for the process. So there was like a deep clean. There was a deep clean that had to happen in order for them to film there. And there was this feeling of like, wait, why are we here? Like, why did we have to shoot at this house? Because it was an emotional thing for her, but it, it didn't make sense budget wise, story wise or production wise. Then uh, my friend was like, he's from Baltimore. He's like, why are we not shooting at the har harbor? Why are we not getting any B-roll of Baltimore? And they were like, oh, we didn't think of that. And so that's when the wheels started to fall off, where you're yeah. like, okay, maybe these people don't really know what they're doing. The film, which was only supposed to last about two weeks, ended up lasting a year. Oh, boy. Because she kept piecing together money, calling up everybody. Hey, guys, come on. I got some more money, let's, let's finish filming. The, I can do these three scenes this weekend. And I became an ungrateful little piece of shit. I'm the lead of this movie, the co-lead of this movie. No one has given me a fucking job up to this point. And right. I'm like, oh, here she go again. I don't right. care what my hair look like. I ain't changing right. it. I, I mean, just like this, this ridiculous level of undeserved privilege. Like, how dare she want me to maintain continuity for her film? Just shit right. where you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And if you're shooting a Christopher Nolan film or, uh, you know, whoever, right. that shit can take a year. Get right. your shit together and show up. So that never got another feature film for another, maybe another decade.
<laughs> maybe another decade. And I said, I got you. I see what that is. Thank you. I learned that lesson. I learned right. it quick. If you can't, you know, the Bible says, he who is faithful in least will be faithful in much, which is just the idea that if you've got a little and you don't appreciate it, take care of it, you know, right. nurture it, you're not going to get the big stuff. And that right. was such a powerful lesson to me. You know, it was like, don't, don't, you know, piss on your blessings. And, and how wonderful of an experience for an actor to have to come back to a character and drop into it for a year and figure it out. Right. What do you think shooting television is? You might take three and a half months off and then you got to come back and be that character. What are you talking, do you understand the way the world works? So it was just a beautiful uh, experience for me, but that was, that was my first, those were my first. It does, seem, it does seem like it was kind of disorganized though. I Absolutely, mean. <laughs> 100%. I mean, it was disorganized. We lost the director, then we lost the DP. So the woman who wrote it and was producing it and editing it started directing it. The DP Man. was some young kid that she grabbed from USC. I mean, it was all over the place, but I could have made it better. Like, instead of looking at it like, how can I just fall in line with everybody and be like, this is some bullshit, I at least could have showed up and did my job at the very least. So, yeah, I mean, yes, it was disorganized. And there are there things that you learn from that, but... Well, I think that's a good that's a good experience though, because you you have to. I have I have missteps that I've made um, along the way on smaller projects. That, Why? What that, are they? Why? What? What are they, Pete Chapman? Well, you know what? So, and two and well, there are like two points that are kind of operating, or two things that are operating in my mind at, at simultaneously. One, for everybody listening, like hear the duration of this journey and also hear the camaraderie developed amongst other people who were in pursuit of the same thing. So like when you mentioned the folks from the academy at Oxford and those people are out here working and you probably still talk to them, right? You know, you mentioned Luke Cage. I think back to 2010 when I shot a web series in Mike Coulter's apartment in Jersey City. You know what I'm saying? Wow. And, and so like, yeah. um, just because they had a dope spot and I was like, can I shoot here? And, you know, yeah. um, 2016, uh, 2014, Black Card to All Rise 2020. You know what I mean? It's such a journey and it's it's important that you just keep your eye on on the target and just work and work and work and you know you'll you'll get there. Um, but the thing that uh, I that I had a learning experience from was um, actually a project that we worked on together, and we did um, it was it was American Cocoa, and so even even the world works in such interesting ways because you know I remember when um, I was I was I Blackheart was screened at at CAM, right? Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. California African-American Museum. Yeah. And yep. the writer, creator, star of that project, Diara Kilpatrick, her mom, Elise, um, RIP, God bless her, had reached out about Black Card. And so mm -hmm. I sent her the film and then it didn't get there. So I ended up having to resend it, but we had like a nice combo. And I don't know that, that's the connection to come. And I don't know if you ever spoke to 
the to the R as well. But then I end up directing American Coco, and then you're in that as well. Yeah. well. We did, we did, we did. She was like, "What do you think about Pete Chapman?" I was like, "Fucking go." Man, so so again, a, another example of like the journey, right? But I was learning. I had not yet learned coming from the feature film world. Um, how to really operate in a television space. And because that show was shot kind of like a film, we did 15 days and 12 episodes. And it was like a lot I was doing, it was like 10 pages a day. Um, I was like, I'm not giving you a shot list. <laughs> you, you know what I'm like? I, like, I will make the days, like I guarantee you, I made every single one of them, but I was like kind of adamant about it. And I'm pretty sure that that left people with a like a, a sense of unease, right? Um, exa exactly. And, and, and as I, but that's because I was really tethered to like, this is like a film and like, I gotta, I, I'm, uh, it's coming at us quick. And I, I'm, I'm prepping and prepping and prepping. I don't necessarily have it all like it's going to be X, Y, Z, but I know how to do it. And then I also know like if we get behind, I can change how I'm going to shoot it at a moment's notice yeah. and I'll still get you what you need from the scene. Um, but that was a thing that like when I kind of did a Monday morning quarterback on it and looked at how I handled that situation, I was like, okay. I'm not going to do that again because I understand the level of comfort that that gives to the team that has hired you. And so moving yeah. forward, I began to give my shot list and my blocking diagrams and all that, that I share on Instagram to not Which only, I love. Uh, thank you. I, I, I share that with the AD and I share that with the DP. And now it's interesting because then I see the relief that comes with it because okay. then they're like, he's prepared. Yeah, and it's just the fact that they're looking at the document. Mm -hmm. They don't and even they, care if you really execute it. They, they don't even care if I'm really going to do it, right? You just and need so to know that, that you have it. That was an important education for me. And what's interesting now is that you know when I did Silicon Valley, nobody asked me for anything because now they're like, he knows what he's doing. And so I just mm. show up and I'm like, boop, boop, boop. I still do all of that, and I'll still yeah. I, I, uh, some shows will require it, like Station 19 required me to do it because yeah. it, there's so many moving parts and it's complicated and people might think they got it, but you can fall off track quickly when you got eight fire trucks and 20 people yeah. that are talking and you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, um, so that, that's been, that was that evolution. Um, the lesson. The lesson. Um, but for you, so, but for you, so like, as we turn toward the, uh, the conclusion here like what is what does all rise mean to you um much like you know you say people reach out to your wife to say like hey my daughter dressed up as maggie for halloween i get grown women who reach out and say i am a judge thank you for putting this image out. I am a lawyer, thank you for putting this image out. I get younger people who are like, I want to be a lawyer because of you. I am staying in law school because of you. Now I might want to become a judge because of you. Um, 
and and the show. So, you know, that's one huge element of it. Um, I think that, you know, when it's all said and done and we look back at this show, whatever it is right now in the zeitgeist, what it will be later on, I hope, is the beginning of telling multicultural stories and not, um, and not, I can't think of the word, but uh, taking advantage of them. You know, not taking the most stereotypical idea of them and exploiting them, but actually telling stories about people of color and not telling just stories about people of color. Like you're actually just trying to tell stories and the people happen to be of color. And so you'll get an idea about that particular culture, that community, that background, because you're just telling a good story. Um, it, it, for me, it is the, the culmination of everything in my career that has prepared me for this thus far. You know, I have gotten to play strong women, strong women who work, you know, in the legal system or the justice system. You know, Misty Knight was a cop. Um, being able to be on, uh, to be on Alter Carbon and play, you know, a bounty hunter, another strong character. And now I'm playing another strong character and playing a judge. That's amazing. But then to be able to weave in the comedy that has been so important in, in my career for so long. And when I think about all those commercials, you know, I was, it was always a funny, it was always a funny commercial. Like I was always getting paid to be funny. And yet right. I remember my dad was like, I forget, it was after a short film that I did. And he was like, you really need to get back into comedy. And I was like, oh, dad, shut up. But that seed was like, yeah, I do. Like, that is what I love. That is what I fell in love with as a kid watching sitcoms. And so to be able to do all of that on a show that tackles these really huge uh, issues that are important, that are present from immigration, uh, physical abuse, domestic violence, uh, drug usage, uh, environmental terrorism against people of color in disadvantaged communities, gender bias, racial bias in the medical system, and now COVID-19 and how that is filtering to every aspect of our society. To be able to handle these issues and still have pratfalls and still have, you know, jokes, still find the levity, still be able to make people laugh and, and feel good and yet handle these things. Like, I think that it's, important. I hope it's a, it's a genre that we see developed uh, right. a little bit more as opposed to just, you know, the, the idea of like the half hour comedy that deals with drama. We have the hour long drama that deals with comedy um, right. and, and with people of color, you know. And so I look, I look at All Rise as just an opportunity to do all of the things that I love with the people that I love and to share that love with, you know, the world. Um, and it, it's amazing. It really is. Like, I'm so thankful and blessed to be able to have fans all over the world who are like, man, I loved you as Misty Knight. And I really like this show now. But is Luke Cage coming back? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a great, it's a great thing to be able to have had just these really, you know, outstanding opportunities and that they're not passing me by. I'm not looking up and I'm like, fuck, I just really didn't appreciate that. Like I appreciate every single day that I get to go to work and, you know, tell these stories. And so 
you know, that's, that's where all rises for me and in my heart. And I hope that we can do it for a good amount of time uh, and continue to see more directors of color work, more female directors work, more writers of color, more female writers work, uh, and get more actors on the screen who right. are not just the same people that you see on the same shows, um, right. but that we're actually taking a chance and casting outside of the box and casting people. You know, we would we would bring characters on and I, and I will have read it in the script and I'm like, oh, that person gonna be white. And then they'll show up and it'll be a woman and it'll be, and it'll be like a Latinx woman. And I'm like, yeah, right. I see that happening. So, you know, I, I, I just enjoy this process. It's fast and furious and unforgiving as television is, especially 22 episodes of television. You know, right. I, I think that this one is an important one. So in closing, any final kind of words of wisdom that you would want to share with, um, you know, that, that up and coming storyteller? Because whether it's they're uh, an actor or a director, like I feel like maybe there's a universal kind of principle or, uh, that is worth uh, imparting from your journey. Um, you know, I, I think about a couple different visuals that I often had when I was uh, working, striving, waiting. Uh, Dorian and I would joke that it felt like pissing in the ocean. Uh, <laughs> and it's not. Uh, there was another one that kind of relayed back to your boat uh, analogy, which is send out improper ships. You know, we always feel like it has to be perfect. It has to be, you know, truly furnished. Everything has to be on it. It's got to be just right. And it's like, right. send out the ships, man. Just send them out. And somebody is going to let your boat dock on their pier. You know what I mean? Like, just send it out. And the other thing is, just uh, another, another thing is be nice. Yeah. You never know who you might work for. The person that you treated like shit might be the person that helps you get your next job. It might be the person who says, mm, no. It might be the person who says, yeah, take a chance on that guy. I remember that. I got a good feeling about that person. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so because you, as you pointed out, so many people have worked with so many people where we're, we find ourselves, the, it's like these circles that just keep crossing over. Um, right. and and you know you got to be nice to everybody on the way up because you might see them on the way down um and <laughs> you better be happy when you do and they better be happy to see you uh and then the other thing is like honestly never give up like you know my family we affectionately say i was a 10 night a 10 year overnight success you know the yeah. people they were like where did she come from and i was like i was probably your server at the cheesecake factory you know uh and and it and it came from thankfully my husband and my family just continuing to impart in me to not give up that it was going to happen that I was talented um, and thankfully I had that tribe around me who, who poured into me positivity and prayer and love um, but at a certain point it had to come from within as well to know like no this is what I'm supposed to do it's not happening in the timetable that I thought but if I don't give up it will happen. And I'm seeing friends of mine, people that I was on the, you know, on the circuit with, uh, you know, struggling, trying to get jobs with, who 
are now, you know, leads of shows, recurring on shows, working, directing. I mean, you know what I mean? Look at what has happened for your career just in the past five, you know, six years when it comes to directing. That is not, it, it doesn't come from giving up, you know? So if you just keep doing the work, you put your head down and keep trying, you know, it can happen. And so I think those are, those are five little jewels. That is uh, so my last question, and this is one I'm taking from uh, uh, Dorian actually put me onto this All the Smoke podcast, um, which which is great with um, Steven Jackson and um, Matt Barnes. And actually, it's been kind of sad because Steven Jackson, uh, George Floyd was his homie. Yeah. So that's how I kind of first saw it, like when, with his Instagram live. Uh, when he yeah. was like, I got to wake up to this bullshit, you know? And, um, mm. but one thing that they do is they ask, who do you think should be our next guest on Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman? And then if you happen to know that person, can you make that happen? Ah, that's a good question. Who should be your next guest? I think that... Let me make sure I'm running through all the actors. I think. And it could be anything. It could be a producer. It could be a writer, a creator. It could be an executive. Like, we're, we're talking to everybody. Talking to everybody. I think I'm going to say Cheo Hadari Coker. All right. And I could definitely I'm do the introduction, but I think Cheo uh, is a brilliant mind. A uh, wonderful human being who's got an interesting journey yeah. from being a journalist and a writer to being a, a showrunner and you know show creator. Well, I I yeah. know Cheo. I I was uh, my sister's very good friends, and I'm friends with his cousins from Montclair. But if you put that little seed in there, I can like Come on, man. Can, you know you know how it is. Me. All right. Um, well, I got you. Simone Missick, thank you for joining the podcast and for being so open with your journey and for sharing uh, your pearls with the people listening. <laughs> thank you, Pete. That is a wrap on episode four of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, Tune in next time for episode five, um, where we'll have another surprise guest because I don't know who's going to join us uh, when I wrap up the prior episode. Um, this has been a pleasure. Hit me up at the mailbag. Uh, let's shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. Let me know, you know, questions, insight, advice, uh, whatever. If there are things that you want answered, um, shoot them to me there and I will pull them into the intros if I can, or at least on the outros somewhere. Or maybe they'll even make their way into the interview. Um, thank you all for all the support. Again, I got to thank my team, uh, Tristan Nash on the post-production, Jada George on the coordination and administration. And uh, until the next time, y'all, stay safe and spread love.